Well, hello, and welcome to episode three of The Wine List, a podcast for people who like wine and would like to know a little bit more about it so that they can attack a wine list and choose what they want to drink with what they want to eat with a degree of confidence. I'm Oliver Turnbull, and with me, as ever, is my friend of over 30 years, wine expert and uh, renowned wit, Mr. Richard Lane. Good evening, Richard. Good evening all. Episode three. We're rocking, aren't we? We're pounding through them. Fantastic. Yeah. We did geography. It was a fascinating episode, the last one. I was uh, really into that. I've re-listened to it just to make sure that it all fitted in. Geography, the country, uh, the 3050 and all that. This week, uh, you've decided to concentrate on a particular country. Would you like to uh, reveal which the country is and what the name of the episode is? We have to look at La Belle France. Good start, yes, why not? I just thought France would be a, a great country to focus on in Series 1. Let's hope there are more Series Oh, that, that would be absolutely great. Not just because France is, you know, 22 miles from the coast of England and all the rest of it, from the county of Kent, all where you live, you know, so it's almost within touching reach. France is so fascinating because I think what we discussed last time is also relevant to this week's episode. France rather neatly falls into the nice 40s, as it were. We talked 30-50 last time with the latitude. France is all in the 40s. Building on the knowledge from episodes one and two, I think we really can, dare I say it, get to the T word in this episode. I think I suggested that we might get to it in episode two. Maybe that was slightly optimistic. When I say the T word, I do mean terroir. Terroir, bien sûr. It does seem appropriate. We're in France. It's a French word and it's it's, it's how they, you know, well, you'll describe it better than me. So absolutely, why not? I've got my map, by the way, in front of me. I knew where Bordeaux was. I had an idea where Languedoc was. Perhaps Languedoc, is that right? Languedoc. Uh, Languedoc, pardon, pardon moi. I had a slight idea where the Rhone was, but it's a little bit further east than I thought. And the Loire Valley, but I can see Burgundy now, sort of central, slightly east, uh, and quite long and thin. And then Champagne, very close to Paris. I did not know that. We're going to be focusing in on Burgundy in a minute, aren't we? Which is like I describe in the middle, sort of, but mostly east, right? And then it is sort of subdivided in the into uh, Cote d'Or, Chalonnaise, Macronnaise, and uh, Beaujolais. And then there's another blob, sort of northwest, uh, still labelled Burgundy, called Chablis. Great, we got there. Shabli, absolutely right. And people are licking their lips thinking, what are they tasting? I can't remember. Well, hopefully they do because they've been listening to last week's episode and they've got their wines lined up. Our wines tonight, there are four wines old. Get that spittoon in front of you. You're going to be needing it, dear fellow. So, yes, we're going to be focused in, in the northernmost part of Burgundy, which is Shabli. We'll talk more about it in a sec. And we'll be tasting and comparing and contrasting a basic level Chablis with a Chablis Premier Cru. I'm quite anxious. Uh, I've got my daughter to label my wines and um, I'm going to undo the labels afterwards. So I'm doing a blind taste. Am I not? On, on the uh, Chablis. We are at the beginning of episode three. You're virtually a master of wine. So I thought, why not give you a blind tasting exam? Because they're such fun. Thank you uh, to Anna Turnbull for organising your blind wines. The point of this is, you know, can we taste even if we're not experienced tasters, like your good self, can you, to use a, um, a British supermarket term, taste the difference? Very and um, so maybe, maybe we can. But And if we can, we'll discuss, well, what does that mean? You know, 
just tasting a difference between two wines is interesting, but understanding why those wines taste differently to each other is interesting. And so we can explore that through this marvellous region called Chablis, which is fantastic and, of course, much loved by the Brits, the wines, I mean, of Chablis. The Britons drink most of the Chablis that's exported. But then we're going to be whizzing down to the Rhone that you've just mentioned, to the southern Rhone, actually, because the Rhone is divided into north and south. So we're going to be having a much sunnier kind of Mediterranean perspective on our red wines, two red wines, again, that we'll be comparing, contrasting, and you'll be writing a thesis about, comparing a basic Côte du Rhône with a cru wine from the southern road called Gigondas. Aha. Get your glasses ready, but let's focus first of all on Chablis. So, uh, Rich, are we allowed to, uh, are we going to be tasting the wines now or before we go into the cru stuff? Because... Uh, oh. <laughs> I'm slightly parched, I don't know about you. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's a wonderful thing about doing this podcast. We've got our wines poured. It's like, oh, let's stop talking and taste the wine. Oh, let's taste the wine. Let's have a little sip now. We don't need to do our full exam now. I know the two wines. Bit unfair, I know. And you don't know the two wines. I mean, you know what we're tasting, but you don't know which is which. Um, so let, let's have a little sip. Um, well, you have a little sip first and tell me, tell me what you think. Well, they look... Very, very similar indeed in colour. I've had them in the glass for about five minutes, so hopefully they're at the right temp. Um, I'm swirling around like I've been told. Good. And the colour is, what, like a pale lemon colour? Yeah, sort of like a, a healthy pea, I'd say. It smells absolutely lovely. On the nose, can you detect any differences between glass A and glass B? So I have not tasted either yet, so I'll sniff the other. Yep, sniffometer. Uh, Do the sniffometer first. Interesting. They both smell very similar. You would probably expect that. <laughs> same region, same grape. Would you hedge your bets at all? And would you say that one had a slightly more pronounced aroma than the other? Or, or at this point, you're saying no? I'm going to, without declaring my hand, I'm going to say that the first one was more uh, pronounced. So with, with the glass that, is, that you're saying is has, has the more pronounced aroma, can you put that on to the right-hand side of the other wine? So the lighter aroma wine is on the left and the more pronounced on the right. And then we've both got, uh, well, if you're correct, we've, we've both got our wines aligned. Yep. Uh, and I'll taste with you according okay. to your null hypothesis, okay? Good which one. is Which is <laughs> indicating just on the nose that if it's more pronounced, for your, the wine that is now on your right-hand side, that would suggest what, all that it's the Chablis or the Premier Cru Chablis? I'm assuming you get more, and it's a lovely smell. They both smell lovely. I'm assuming the Premier would uh, now be on my right. Correct. If a wine is of greater status, if it's been given Premier Cru status over a basic Chablis, that will imply that the grape ripening has been superior, and this will relate to stuff we're going to talk about relating to terroir so therefore you would expect more flavors and aromas coming out of the glass of the premier cru wine okay let's have a little sip i would go left glass first which we're assuming although we don't know yet is the basic chablis it does smell nice it does smell great they really do don't they there's, there's something well it's just chablis i mean it's that kind of citrus slightly stony whetstone sort of thing yeah i'm getting the whetstone i'm probably being a little bit suggestible but uh, i can i can see that and certainly the acidic it's lovely i'm just tasting wine number one <coughs> the, le the left hand wine wow <coughs> all right there fellow mm -hmm. yeah sorry just went down the wrong way i should have spat it out yes yeah, got to practice your um swirling tasting and spitting technique golly 
And the acidity is high in wine number one, the left-hand wine. But it probably will be high in the other one too, because Chablis is, as we've already said, quite far north in Burgundy, 47 degrees old. That looks about right from my map, my globe and my diagram. Yeah. And I have three ways of, uh, <laughs> of assessing the latitude. <laughs> this is a cool climate. One thing that Chablis struggles with is the fact that it can be really decimated by spring frosts so the amount of grapes and therefore wine produced in Chablis varies from year to year because it's a marginal climate one of your favorite marginals again I'll and if you get a bad frost like this blinking year 2021 awful beginning of April severe frost so expect uh, yields and wine volume to be down in Chablis in 2021 question what does that affect across the board is it a completely democratic thing so the grand crew the premier crew the normal chablis the petit chablis which will which we'll describe in a minute they'll obviously all be affected by bad frost does that mean in a year where you've had bad weather there is going to be a particular differentiation between the best and the worst or um, does it level the playing field Great question, and it's a great way of beginning to understand terroir, that question. Let's talk now a tiny bit about topography and these, what Grand Cru and Premier Cru and Chablis and Petit Chablis means. Starting at the top, Chablis Grand Cru is on a pretty steep slope on the kind of eastern side of the River Serin, which is the river that runs north. Crucially, it's quite a steep slope and it faces south, and the vineyards there Oh, it's one big vineyard with um, seven kind of named plots all conjoined. Those are the Chablis Grand Cru sites. They have the best exposure to the sun because they're facing south, they're on a slope, they're quite close to the river, and all of those factors mitigate against frost. Compare that with the other extreme, Petit Chablis, which is the level below basic Chablis. Those vineyards will be on flat land. They'll be away from the river because rivers can offer protection when it's um, frosty. They're relatively warmer than the land around them. So if you're not near the river and you're on flat land, and golly, if you're facing north, then you're going to be a bit buggered. If you get a spring frost facing north, then you're going to struggle. In a dodgy year with spring frosts, then you would expect Petit Chablis and Basic Chablis to struggle the most. And this is where Premier Cru and Grand Cru Chablis should, because they're in their better locations, protected from the worst of the frost, later on in the summer when the actual vintage gets going again and the sun comes out, though the remaining grapes, assuming that they haven't been too damaged by the frost in the first place, will ripen really, really well. Right. Must mention... The soils in Chablis, as, as well as the importance of hills and slope and aspect and sun capture, things I've just mentioned, the soils in Chablis are an incredibly important component to the terroir of Chablis. The bit, just very, very briefly, there's something really important called Kimmeridgian soil. It's basically a sort of clay limestone thing. It's all to do with geology. And the limestone bit is really relevant because it's to do with just bear me out here, seashells, fossils that were laid down in the rock, you know, millions of years ago. But they do come through in this slightly sort of lighter soil in the better parts of Chablis. And although, as we mentioned in the last step, you don't taste soils directly, there's definitely, I think, um, pretty good evidence that it's the Kimmeridgian soil, particularly these old fossils, uh, that when they are present, quite often present in the best sites, the Premier Crew and, and the Grand Cru sites, that the, there's actually a terroir expression going on here, which makes Chablis and good Chablis taste so amazing. In other words, kind of nervy, high acidity, sometimes a bit steely. There's a kind of kind of backbone to it. It's a kind of exciting, kind of energetic sort of taste. And uh, so without tasting the soil, certainly the kind of terroir effect relating to these Kimmeridgian sort of clay limestone soils going back millions of years is a factor 
but it's not the only factor in terroir. I think that's why so many people end up saying, oh, they love Chablis. They can't stand Chardonnay, but gosh, they do like Chablis, not realising that, of course, Chablis is 100% Chardonnay. And Chablis, frankly, is just an amazing expression of Chardonnay. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? All these w- words that intertwine. Exactly. The, the, the grape, the location, uh, the vineyard, the bottler, etc. I'm looking at a photo that you sent me earlier yeah. um, of the Grand Cru vineyards of Chablis. And I'm like, I'm looking at basically a hill thinking, well, this isn't it. Where's the rest of it? And it's unbelievably tiny area of a town, which is a small town in France, a small country in the world that produces this heavy hitting uh, in terms of commercial popularity wine. It's extraordinary. And um, just to summarize, just so I've got this right, uh, the Grand Cru is the best and there's um, seven vineyards that will provide it and they're all joined together in this area that I'm looking at now. It's beautiful, by the way. It reminds me of lovely Yorkshire. God's uh, and then country. below that, you've got the, the Premier Cru and there's you know, a number of vineyards that will provide that and they're sort of scattered all over. The Ordinary Chablis and then below that, the Petit Chablis. What I didn't realise was that um, it is not designated each year. It's if a wine is grown in a particular vineyard that happens to be a Grand Cru vineyard, that wine will be Grand Cru, right? Yeah, Based yeah. on the geography of the location. Oh, yeah, yeah, where the absolutely. Yes, there are critical moments. And, and, and Chablis got its Appellation Controle status in, in, in 1938 or something like that. And that's when the vineyards initially for Chablis would have been delineated, specifically geographic pieces of registered land that are permitted to grow grapes that have had Grand Cru and Premier Cru and Basic Chablis. There was a big expansion in the late 70s. Apparently it was nearly a civil war because, you know, Chablis was so popular and the Brits were buying so much of it. They were desperate to expand what was, as you've just commented, quite a small area, really. So, I mean, Chablis basically went from 500 hectares in the 1950s to 5,000 hectares today due to market demand. And taking your question the other way, if it was a warm vintage in Chablis, and by the way, we're tasting 2019, 2019, these two wines, that's a very warm year. You should potentially get a decent ordinary Chablis in 2019 because even with flat land that isn't necessarily facing the right direction if it's a really sunny summer you should get decent grape ripening it's more of a level playing field when you have a good a good season weather-wise I think yeah it's hard to generalize because there are so many nuances particularly in Burgundy I think that is a reasonable assumption but later on in this episode when we're down in in the in the southern Rhone we'll paint a slightly different picture Oh, I think you need to pick up wine number two. I will. I, as I do that, I have another question, though. I, I'm looking at the wine list from Chez Bruce, which is our our go-to wine list, which I'm getting every episode less intimidated by because I'm understanding it more, and it's just so logical, as well as infuriating and illogical, but it's understandable now because I'm starting to get the language, and I have the uh, the right-handed wine in my in my hand. But I'm seeing a Petit Chablis on the wine list. I'm seeing on this wine list it's so um it's got so much detail there are actually five chablis available three of them are premier crew uh one of them is grand crew and one petit chablis but the pricing's interesting because uh the grand crew is not the most expensive uh which i'm assuming because there's another variable coming in here which is the year so what year is the grand crew on the wine list uh the grand crew is uh, 2014 and the premier crews both of which are more expensive than the Grand Cru are respectively uh, 2005 and 2010. Interesting because another thing about Chablis, good quality Chablis and basically Petit Chablis and Chablis 
can be fine, absolutely fine, quite straightforward wines for early consumption. You generally don't keep them. When you get to Premier Cru and Grand Cru, they have ageability because there's concentration in the fruit because if you've got concentrated fruit flavours as a result of the great aspect terroir that means they can potentially age there's another important factor here that helps aging and that's the high acidity of chardonnay as far north as chablis because acidity obviously helps preserve flavors if you've got a combination of really ripe fruit and and high acidity then yes you can definitely as the wine list is telling us you can age premier cru chablis golly 2005 16 years ago yeah fantastic and as we discussed in episode two you know we know um, that 05 and 10 were fantastic summers for, for French wine, for Loire and everywhere else. So there you've got all. You recognise the years, the warm summers, which means the wines will have evolved in the bottle and they'll become more complex. So it's not just that the wine's pretty good when it's first made. The top premium examples will improve with age. When the acidity and the flavour concentration is good enough, they develop what are called tertiary flavours in the bottle. And the main thing you'd get with a Chablis Premier Cru or Grand Cru, you often get a kind of nuttiness, like a hazelnut kind of flavour in the wine. And that's an example of, of bottle ageing, something that evolves over time. And I dare say those that 05 and the 10 Premier Crus are absolutely stonking and the Grand Cru I'm sure it's fine but 14 wasn't a great year but as we've just said shouldn't matter too much on a Grand Cru site but uh, I was in Chez Bruce the other day had a quick word with the sommelier what percentage of customers of Chez Bruce don't even look at the wine list and just say to the sommeliers you tell me what to have oh wow I would say quite a lot uh, and the reason I say that is um, because a lot of people like me w- w- would not want to tackle a 30 page wine list and i think that's that's quite a lot and also a, a gentleman i have dinner with um rarely but it's always an occasion who does know his wine always enjoys a conversation with a sommelier as opposed to um rooting through the wine list so i'm going to say a high proportion and i'm going to say 75 percent brilliant i love your reasoning and deduction there he reckons 70 percent. really yeah i love that i'm so close and I, I and I, I wonder if there's two distinct cohorts the ones that think look i'm gonna i'm gonna cut through this by asking the expert i like him i respect him he seems really credible or she and the other one who uh alistair my friend who just likes a likes a likes a chablis actually but he really likes a conversation as well and but it, it's part of the for him i believe it's part of the sort of ritual of having a lovely dinner um, is having that conversation and, and almost having a negotiation with sommelier who when they're very skilled is not only knowledgeable but obviously makes the customer uh, feel special and, and and not ignorant obviously uh, and last time i went out for dinner with him the sommelier was an absolute expert uh, in both those aspects of his job he was very impressive and you could actually say oh in a restaurant like Chez bruce or other you know really quality restaurants where they have sommeliers and their head sommelier and they've got incredible wine knowledge you'd be crazy not to take advantage of the sommelier mm. Mm. so so actually you could argue it's probably harder to do a wine list where you don't have sommeliers there will be wine lists there will be restaurants where there isn't that much knowledge around and that's where it's almost more difficult and punters are saying shall i go for the basic house wine or shall i go for the second one is the second one going to be the the cheaper option or the best option and you sent me an article which um <laughs> actually proposed an argument that it might not be such a bad thing to go for but uh 
We may talk about that later. Tell me about wine number two, the right-hand wine. And go back to your left-hand wine. Go between the two. Maybe just have a little pause in between or a bit of water or something. And see if yep. you can pick, and, and tell me any differences you're picking up on the palate. Yeah, I am. And I'm nervous. I'm really nervous because I was convinced from the news that I'd got it, you know, left one um, was the cheaper one and right one was the more expensive one. But tasting them... I'm less sure, which is strange, but it seems like, if anything, the right one is more smooth and subtle than the left one, possibly. I certainly wouldn't put any money on it at all. I mean, I'll be thrilled if I'm right, because I'll I'll still probably go with what I originally thought, which was the left one is the basic, right one is the premiere. But I still like the left one. And I think it could either be because it is the um, <laughs> it is the premiere and I've got it wrong. Or it could be I'm familiar with a slightly cheaper wine and there's a familiarity aspect coming in. There seems to be more flavours in there, but I'm not sure those flavours are more uh, sophisticated, uh, for want of a better word, without sounding pretentious. Can you use any adjectives to, to describe what you're tasting, breaking it down a bit as we've done before. Are there any particular fruits, for example, that you find in there? Think of things like citrus fruit or green fruit, things like apple or pear for green fruit or a bit of lemon or grapefruit on the citrus and spectrum or maybe a touch of peach or anything like that on stone fruit. Anything like that going on? I don't know why I was feeling apple but I was feeling hard hard fruit uh, on the left one just. As you know, I'm, I still struggle with differentiating an individual fruit type I, i'm sure i'll get i'll get more into it and i think there's some citrus going on and there is something there's a sort of almost not yet invented fruit <laughs> that i'm <laughs> tasting let's just call it an oligon let me try the right-handed wine and i really really concentrate i think it might be apple yeah i'm starting to more and more feel that, that maybe the right-hand one is the is the premiere but um, again i definitely wouldn't put the mortgage on it another little clue all without worrying about adjectives and apples what about mouthfeel? Does one of the wines have a bit more weight in the mouth than the other one? Is one a bit more watery? Do you know what? In that sense, it's the other way around. The left-hand one is more weighty and the right-hand one is more watery to me. Um, so that's thrown me up in the air, frankly. One of the wines, which our left-hand wine at the moment, according to our hypothesis, Lena, the acidity seems more pronounced somehow. It's a straightforward wine. It's classic apple, pear, lemon, touch of whetstones, high acidity, medium alcohol. Easy for me to say when I know the wines, but suggesting that it's absolutely lovely and fresh for drinking now. When I taste the right-hand wine, still getting that high acidity, dribbling away, mouth-watering acidity, like the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Remember that? I remember. Yeah, very much. The right-hand wine, for me, has got more body. It's tasting of yellow apples it makes me think of yellow apples the fruit is more obvious to me and there's a texture about it there's a riper fruit flavor here absolutely delicious have a good old glug but don't swallow of your right hand wine yep and see if you if we're tasting the same wine (laughs) we'll find out a bit see if you detect this kind of ripe apple flavor that i'm getting whereas with the other wine i'm getting more citrus and a leaner kind of experience right so what i did get on the right hand side what was more apple for sure um, and i think i wasn't imagining it because i was trying to describe something in the left and it was easier to do in the right and there was definitely a different taste it just tasted sort of lighter somehow um and the, and the flavors more 
more subtle. But the apple came out in the right-hand one, definitely. And the aroma was stronger in the right-hand one, definitely. I felt like the right-hand one was more watery, uh, in a sense. I'm favouring the right-hand one, I have to say, as the um, as the premiere. But I'm not sure. Maybe you have to coach me further. Let's have a look. Okay, dokie. Uh, I'm very, very nervous now because I feel like I failed. But I'm now um, revealing the right hand one, uh, Rich. Yeah. So the one that I think is the posh one. Oh no! It's... <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I'm so rubbish. Oh. It's all right. It's fine. Oh, that's gutting. I mean, I was the only thing is I was confused um, because the I certainly got more on the nose on the right one, and maybe that influenced me too much and there was definitely more flavor though in the left one um so what's this taught me is i suppose what to look out for do you know what i actually was going to say in my defense i was going to say i think the one on the left is the cheap one which i did but i like it more because i've got a very unsophisticated palate so it, it, what, what i'm going to come away from this trying to feel better about myself uh, by saying i actually liked the more expensive one <laughs> I am with you all. I think it's what they call a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, of course, we both had a magnificently classical education. But uh, yeah, I know what a Pyrrhic victory is. And it's, yeah. And the reality is, all I think your aromas, your nose, and your taste buds were honing in on the basic Chablis because that's a wine you will have experienced before. And you've probably got some possibly subconscious memory of, of that kind of style of wine. And frankly, I don't have Premier Cru Chablis very often. It's not cheap. I mean, it's £22 a bottle, the Premier Cru, and it's about £16 a bottle for the ordinary Chablis. So even at ordinary Chablis, it's quite expensive. Actually, all you know... This wasn't an exam at all. It was just a case of interest to see, you know, could we, at this early stage, make some deductions? Okay, you got it wrong, but all, all you should see my professional tasting exams. I make so many mistakes. It's just disastrous. So don't even worry about that. I think it just tells us that we're in the middle of episode three. We're still climbing up the mountain a bit. But I think it's quite interesting I got it wrong. It's not as if I thought, my God, but that was that was clearly the winner. There were loads of things that I've learned uh, now, particularly the thing that I'm kicking myself about is that I felt that the um, one that I said was the posh one was sort of more watery to me. Uh, and I was really disappointed because I'd, I'd, I'd smelt it and thought it was great. But then I thought, I wonder if that means it's just more subtle and therefore the, the posh one. So I'm kicking myself for not really listening to you uh, in terms of what I was listening out for. I'll get over it. I think it's fine. I've just poured myself just a tiny measure of the um, of the Premier Crew and it is, it's, it is lovely. It is extremely pleasant. Tiny kind of marketing thing about Chablis. I would say Premier Crew Chablis, okay, it's five six pounds more than bog standard chablis i think that's the best use of a fiver i can think of yeah when you get used to wine and you get used to to to, and your palate develops it's not about always saying you've got to buy the expensive wine and i love some wines that are under a tenner absolutely i'm not a wine snob as you know value i think comes to understanding relative value what i would say about chablis is that in premier cru chablis you've just got a beautiful generally consistently 
brilliant expression of Chablis that's only a few quid more than a basic Chablis. And I think there is a quantum leap up in quality from one to the other. And even last week, a friend of mine, dear Andy, treated me to some Grand Cru Chablis. First time I'd ever had a Grand Cru Chablis. And it was... Yeah, it was kind of sublime, but I'm not going to bang on about it because we don't often drink Grand Cru Chablis. But all I want to say is, if it's a warmish year and you know the year's good, you might get away with your Chablis and be absolutely fine. But if you really want to treat yourself, get a Premier Cru. Value isn't the most expensive. Value isn't the cheapest. Value usually isn't the second to cheapest. It's all about, like you say, there's an increment of a five or whatever. But in your judgment, which of course I... I would, I would, you know, sit behind in a restaurant. Um, that 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 fiver increment, the taste increment, is is greater than that relatively, and that's what value is. I see it. I'm disappointed. But what 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 is good is that if we can get me at the end of the series or the beginning of next series to get one right easily, then um, it'll be a good test that we're, it will that we're be. working well. Okay, all shabbly, we love it, but it's time to head south. Right, yep, I've got my map up again. Uh, yeah, and uh, we're in the Rhone Valley, I'm assuming. But why is it Côte de Rhone we always talk about when the wine comes from the Rhone Valley? Is it because it's, it's uh, Côte Coast? Côte can be a coast. Côte can also mean slopes. So it's really the fact that the dominant geographical factor here is is the mighty Rhone River, where the Rhone Valley starts is just south of Lyon. If you look on your map, you can see where Lyon is. So, have a look. so Hang on. yeah, I mean, literally just sort of just south of Beaujolais. Blimey, yeah, yeah, that is a that is a proper river. Um, so no wonder it's got a valet. We're focusing on the southern Rome. It's a Mediterranean climate, very different to Chablis. We're comparing and contrasting the staple wine of the region, which is Cote du Rhone, which is my wife Liz's favourite red wine and whenever we try stuff she goes yeah that's quite nice that's quite nice we've got the Cote de Rhone and I love that because wine doesn't need to be complicated and expensive a good Cote de Rhone I think is one of the most pleasing wines going tell me about the colour of these two wines we've got the basic Cote de Rhone on the left and the Gigondas on the right the colour of both is beautiful a lovely deep red in the Cote de Rhone beautiful and deep and and mysterious but the Gigondas has a sort of that classy almost purpley plummy kind of color which looks lovely and you taught me how to look sort of through it the translucency of it and it's got that slightly paler almost like port if you like color which is also very very beautiful but both lovely but both different and i could tell the difference immediately even with an untrained eye now we should say the Cote de Rhone is a 17 so actually I'd say getting on a little bit for a Cote de Rhone only because basic Cote de Rhone is generally intended to be drunk young but this wine society wine we've got half bottle of of Cote de Rhone is made by Gigal who is one of the most famous names in the Rhone Valley so I expect a basic Cote de Rhone from Gigal is going to be superb most ordinary Cote de Rhone you'd probably want to drink no more than a year or two of age is that because of the grape or the terroir? The, the fact that generally you uh, drink them young? The terroir, all. I love the way you're going with your terroir. Oh, I understand. I understand these terms. Get you in your big terroir ways. I'm going to call you a terrorist. Nice one. <laughs> the hierarchy thingy, just, just very quickly. In the Rhone Valley, the southern Rhone, the big bit at the bottom is Côte du Rhone. Then you've got Côte du Rhone village above that which are designated villages that can have the Côte de Rhone village, the village bit added to the label. This means that 
The terroir is slightly more favourable. The grapes are going to have a better chance of ripening and concentrating, and you'll potentially get better wines from, but it has to be from within this delimited or delineated villages, whereas the bottom level, fruit can come from anywhere in the whole region of those 66,000 hectares. So there's less control, and therefore it's a bit more sort of generic. Cote village with a name village, which means the grapes have just come from that terroir of one village that has been identified by the French authorities as having a superb terroir because maybe the slope is amazing, the fruit quality is incredible as a result, and therefore... The soil, maybe, even? And the soil, of course. There we go. It's pretty stony in the southern Rome, but you get a little bit of clay as well, which is handy because it can hang on to a bit bit of water because you don't get much rain here uh, in the growing season. Between May and September, not much rain. And then at the top, above Cote Rome Village, brackets name village, are the crew. And the crew, C-R-U-S, plural of crew, generally means growth, as in the top growths, at the very, very top of the tree would be Chateauneuf-du-Pap, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. And they are often lovely. They have complexity. There are rules which stipulate how they're made, where they can be made around this village called Chateauneuf-du-Pap, which is close to Avignon. But there are a few other crew appellations as well. And the names of the these crew tend to relate to the villages they come from. And these villages tend to, tend to start off like life as being a name village under Cote de village, like the one we're drinking tonight. Gigonda is a crew. A few years ago, it would have been Cote de village brackets Gigonda, but it's been promoted. Have I got the levels right? So there's your basic Cote de uh, then there's one that is a village, yeah. then a named village, yeah. and then a crew village. That's it. Well, it, it couldn't be more different from Chablis. So thank you, France. Back to the wines. I want you to get your nosy-nosy on these two wines first, and then we'll talk about the palette, the taste of these two wines, and, and compare them. The Cote de Rhone's a 17, and the Gigondin's a 16. Going back to our years, again, we're quite far south here, Mediterranean, so the years should be less relevant. It's less marginal, the climate, but I would say 17 was tricky because there was a lot of frost damage even in the Cote Rhone. it was a terrible frost year like this year 21 and 16 was just a really good year all over so question Richard you talk about these years with great authority as ever when you go into a restaurant do you have to have a catalogue of good years in a particular region of let's face it it's not just France it's the world because it seems like you'd have to have a massive database in your head I think we need some sort of artificial intelligence sort of application uh, Oliver perhaps you could find one for us in in series two but no I mean I'm talking generically about Europe and France but it could basically apply but obviously the further south you go the less relevant it is in Europe because it's, it's generally warmer anyway so would you use your vintage knowledge in a restaurant to help you make wine choices in other words you'll turn up with um, a, a load of knowledge about which years were good years and uh, which uh, wines will therefore have aged more uh, before you look at the wine list because that sounds like a hell of a lot of data to hold in your head if I was having a basic Cote d'Arone the first thing I'd be saying is I want to drink something quite recent because I don't think Cote d'Arone is going to age that well because it's it's at the bottom of the pyramid and therefore I don't think it's got longevity. I don't you don't age Cote, basic Cote d'Arone generally, which is so here we are tasting a seventeen. It's probably as old as it's going to be. We'll taste it in a sec. If I was tasting a crew, if I saw a twenty ten, if I saw an 09 
stroke 10 Chateauneuf-du-Pape and I wasn't paying, I'd definitely order it because they're belting years and those wines have had 10 years to evolve. Going back to Chablis, the good Chablis evolving in the bottle from the wine list. If I had a Chateauneuf-du-Pape and it was a 15 or a 16 or an 18 or a 19, these are good vintages. I think that's too young for a Chateauneuf because... It's a crew. It's at the top of the crew. It's at the top point of the pyramid. I want that wine to have age. The reason I'm paying a lot of money for a Chateauneuf-du-Pape is I'm buying into that complexity. My senses are going to go crazy with tastes of, of red fruits and black fruits and dried fruits and leather and meat and caramel and all these funky things you get with Grenache. So I guess what's interesting about this is that you can take some of the principles that you're teaching me here, Rich, uh, and then apply them sort of more generally on a wine list without having to know all the deep detail. So that kind of helps you build your confidence, I guess. Confidence wasn't built in a day. It just accumulates with, with experience. It's like practicing your you practice your guitar. I don't practice my violin. I mean, I do practice my violin, you know. And when I do practice my violin, when I get worried because I've got a gig coming up, I practice really hard. And suddenly my play gets lots better quite quickly. Let's have a sip of the wines. I'll start off with the Cote de Rome. What are your first impressions? Wow. That is, I suppose you'd say, heavy. It seems to have one flavour, but there's a hell of a lot of it. Maybe I should concentrate a bit more. Good observation. Now switch to, to, to the Gigondas. I can taste the, the same sort of things here. There's something something going on. I want to say licorice, but in the Gigonda, there's something amazing, wonderful. It just hits you straight between the eyes. Um, as usual, um, I haven't quite got the words. I can't quite describe it, but it's uh, it's very, very lovely. It's got all sorts of stuff going on. It's almost like listening to music in, a, in the same key, but it's a, it's a much sweeter melody. Wine number one, the basic Cote de Rhone, what you're really noticing, and, and on the palate as well, which is constant, is, is a really warm, ripe red fruit. Red cherry, strawberry, yes, raspberry. Red sure. It's red fruits. There's nothing dark and black currently about this. And it's delicious, and it's quite simple. And simple is good. Simple's not a negative thing and you appreciate that when you quite quickly then taste the gigondas oh wow it is incredible that gigondas is lovely where you're yes you're getting the fruit the primary fruit of the Cote de Rome but you're also getting a sense of tannic structure you're getting some oak flavours a, li a little bit not much but you're getting kind of dried fruits and you're getting this lovely stuff it's almost like truffly mushroomy I can't describe it you said truffly and there's definitely something non-fruity musty about it. it it could be truffly but i might just being being suggestive again but uh yeah it's strange and quite difficult when you can't find the adjectives i i think that's something else i need to learn really it's a kind of contrast of fruit you're getting something it's almost savory you're getting something almost i i think you're getting something mushroomy almost a bit, a bit like a that kind of mushroom risotto lovely flavor you get it's and all your converted vegetarian you'll appreciate this that lovely kind of umami savory thing you get with mushrooms sometimes i'm definitely getting that there's no way i'm getting that with the coat drone going back to the coat drone is again it's great but it's 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 fruit it's basically red fruit it's saying hello i'm red fruit i'm from the southern rhone and also the alcohol is contributing to the body here do you, do you sense these wines are quite full-bodied in the mouth when you say full body, you mean kind of strong alcoholically? Yeah, I mean, mm. they're not light. They don't, they're not watery in the mouth, are they? Absolutely not. And that's true of both of them, for sure. So the Gigonda is 15%. Boom. Wow. Uh, and the basic Cote de Rhone is 145 You can really tell the heaviness. 
I quite like that because there was some sort of dilution effect <laughs> almost in, in, in the whites that we had earlier. But this is like, yeah, you are getting 100% wine here, my friend. Lovely. The other thing I might note is that the, the standard Cote de Rhone, it's sort of simpler, isn't it? It's like straightforward, boom, red wine, loads of alcohol, enjoy, lovely taste. But there's so much more going on in the Gigonda. It's amazing. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear you say all this because what you're recognising, your senses are detecting the, the quality difference. You're, you're talking about complexity here. You're, you've identified complexity in the Gigonda, which is great. And you've also recognised the purity stroke simplicity of the Cote de Rhone. And they are basically similar, but very different. I just want to talk about inverse terroir all for a sec. Whoa, inverse terroir. I'm just being pretentious and calling it terroir to the minus one. Now I understand. In Chablis, it's so far north in Burgundy, 47 degrees, as we said, and frost is a real hazard in the spring. Here in the southern Rhone, we're, so we're in Avignon territory. We know how warm it gets down there and how increasingly warm. I mean, going back to climate change again, years ago, when this appellation was created in the 1930s, the Appalachian Controle rules for Chateauneuf-du-Pape, you know, the top crew of the Southern Rhone, stipulated that the wines had to be 12.5% alcohol. Are you kidding? You'll struggle to get one now under 14.5. This Gigonda is 15. The problem now that winemakers have in the south of France is that the wines are becoming too boozy because the summers are getting hotter. And so what's happening now with viticulture in the Southern Rhone Anyone who's ripping up vines or planting new vines, quite often they're planting them, A, at altitude, as we discussed with Chile in the last step, and B, facing north. Facing north? Surely not. You're in the northern hemisphere and you have a vineyard facing north. You absolutely do, because you want to lessen the ripening of the grape, because the sugar build up, particularly in Grenache, which is a grape variety that is thin-skinned, which means that the sugars build up very, very quickly in the juice of the grape. And obviously, the more sugar you've got, that means the more alcohol you're going to have. That means that unless you can somehow control the sugar content of the grape, you're going to end up with a 15, 16, it could even be 17%. I mean, we're getting into sherry port territory here. And that's a problem because people will not drink these heavy wines. They're tiring to drink. They're delicious. You have a glass, delicious, but you have two glasses and you feel a bit woozy. As a result of the sugar going up in the grapes, the acidity can drop. And that means these wines can lose freshness. It's the absolute reverse situation of Chablis, where you're doing your damn most to ripen the grapes, to build up the flavours and ripen the fruit and to get wonderful flavours going on. A few hundred miles further south, you're actually doing the opposite. You're trying to slow down the ripening so that you don't end up with too much sugar and overly jammy, overly boozy wines oh wow so yeah so if it accelerates it's massively difficult to correct for i guess i mean you've got to physically move stuff grow different things i don't know you can't change the slope of a hill um so massive implications if it keeps changing at this rate right you can actually pull up a vine whenever you want and replant as long as you're conforming to the rules of the appellation there's a lot of head scratching going on at the moment because frankly it's benefiting shabbily more than it's benefiting the Cote de Rhone. Because, of course, the shift is 
it's the the more marginal places in the north are now becoming more reliable and in the south it's getting too warm so actually the the 30 50 thing in terms of latitude might be changing and become a more of a a slightly less pleasing 32 52 thing or something maybe uh, bringing dorset into the equation they can't change 30 50 we've just done 30 50 they're not allowed to change those lovely round figures <laughs> blimey well yeah Golly, these must be worrying times for winemakers. I mean, part of me is infuriated by the appellation contrôlée and uh, different rules for different regions. It goes completely against my sense of logic and all things being in the right place and order. And then part of me thinks, actually, that's very French. It's quaint, it's sweet, and um, it's, you know, adds a little je ne sais quoi. And I say, good on them. Well done. Well done them for making it so complex and having everyone else having to understand their rules. I suppose, like the LBW law, it's complex for a reason. Next week's episode of is, um, I don't want this to sound too dull, but we're going to look at the history of wine. No, no, not dull. Definitely not. Not dull at all. And we will talk about, because all these episodes are interrelated. We haven't just done France. We haven't just done Appalachian and Controle, because what we've touched on today is also relevant to what we talk about next time. But we are going to be exploring why did human beings start drinking wine where did it all start when did it start and how do we relate that to to what we're drinking today as consumers in the 21st century how much are we consuming and who's consuming the most and and blah 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 blah. so i think we can have a really good historic and modern episode next time and grab your wines dear listeners because in the next episode we're going to be drinking a chino mavro which is a a very tannic red wine from uh, northern greece And we're also going to be tasting a medium-sweet Riesling from the Moselle. Uh, If you're into your German terms, it's a Spätlaser. And all of that will be explained next time. Because in Germany and Greece, we are, in some sense, it's almost going back to the cradle of civilization, almost, in terms of history. And next week's episode is all about wine history. Oh, I think you've done brilliantly today. Are you feeling okay? Yes, I think it's nice that you um, describe my performance as brilliant in the sense that um, I had one wine to guess and I got it wrong. But you got it wrong so brilliantly. (laughs) That, I would say, my old friend, is uh, rather an optimist's way of putting it. I would put it more succinctly, as would my father, no doubt, reading my report and staring over his glasses as 0% success. But I learnt a lot. And I understand why I got it wrong, because there were some things that made me think, "Mm, I think maybe this one's the classy one, this one's not. To the point where I, with much more confidence, when we got to the Reds, I was thinking, yep, there is tons more uh, going on in this uh, Gigondas than there is in the standard uh, Cote de Rome. And yet, to um, support Liz's worldview, that Cote de Rome was tasty. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And probably, we were talking about value before, probably very good value for bang for buck that gave you a hell of a lot of wine. So um, moving forward, not in the slightest bit discouraged that I got naught out of one uh, in my uh, taste test because I think um, the next time we do this, I'm going to do I'm going to do tons better. I promise. Good friend of mine is a wine critic. He's more experienced in wine than I am. He tweeted about the wine society Gigal Cote de Rhone 2017. His conclusion was, what a lot of bang for your buck. There's an awful lot of wine going on here. There you go. I'm starting to learn the lingo. So basically, you've summarised the Cote de Rhone as my friend did who works in the wine business. 
Thank you, Richard. You have always uh, you have a talent for making people feel a lot better about themselves you never come away from an interaction with mr lane not feeling better about the world and yourself oh my dear boy just before you go hit me with the wine list i have it in front of me and i have it at the right place in the uh, southern horn and this is going to be interesting because i'm still quite confused by um some of the words on here as usual except one at the bottom we've got something that says clos saint michel but it says chateauneuf de pape so i know chateauneuf de pape is the top so that's that's relatively the top wine some of the others uh, don't even say Côte du rhone on them we've got one at the beginning which is the cheapest one which obviously caught my eye which is the domaine de fondreche ventu so i'm wondering whether ventu is a village uh, a village but um, i wouldn't be able to guess.